How's it going? Susan Ruth here. On this episode of Hey Human podcast, I speak with the lovely Hal Humphreys, who is a private investigator. His company is called Find Investigations. He's also a podcaster. He's got Spy Curious. We'll talk about that on the episode. So, you know, I'm rehashing it, I suppose. I'm pre-rehashing it. I'm pre-hashing it? Is that a word? Um, It's really interesting. I learned a lot about private investigating. Uh, You know, I, like so many people, have this image of what a private investigator is. You know, crunched down in the seat with binoculars and a marble hanging with ash. It's not really that at all. Maybe it is for some things. Maybe it is in the movies, but it doesn't sound like it in real life. At least not for Hal. Um, There's one moment during this uh, episode where there is the longest pregnant pause in the history of podcasts, probably. Pretty funny. I chose to keep it in there just because it made me laugh. So, anyway, look for that one. There's nothing wrong with your, uh, your episode. We really didn't speak for what felt like an eternity. Please check out Hey Human on iTunes and subscribe. It's wonderful when you subscribe. Tell all your friends and have them tell their friends to subscribe. Getting the word out really is wonderful. Uh, HeyHumanPodcast.com. If you want to check out links, I put links up there uh, every episode. for whatever we talk about on the episode and just some interesting facts about humans in general. So there's that. There's also Hey Human Podcast Instagram, which is, I just said that backwards. It's actually Instagram.com slash Hey Human Podcast. Follow that and get some cool pictures of humans and the inside of my brain. (laughs) Terrifying, really, but you know. If you're adventurous, come on. So anyway, uh, without further ado, here we have Hey Human podcast, Hal Humphreys, private investigator. Using your garage band? (laughs) Yeah, real high tech. (laughs) And my Yeti microphone. That's not a bad microphone. Yeah. I I would have thought you would have had like some, like, you know, Neumann's on it. Oh, no, it's pretty low budget around here. But, (laughs) you know, it is what it is, so... Hal, yes. thank you for being here. Happy to be here. How the heck are you? I'm good. Hal is a private investigator, among a bunch of other things, an incredible writer as well, but I have you here as a private investigator. I need you to find someone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, findinvestigations.com uh-huh. and Spy Curious Podcast. I just, just found out that you have a podcast, Spy Curious Podcast. Yeah, that's through Pursuit Magazine, which is... Um a magazine that, that I own with a, a business partner that caters to private investigators and mm-hmm. uh, investigative journalists um, talks about how to do how to do what jokes. you do yeah how to do what we do cool that kind of stuff you haven't done that your whole life but everything you've done up to when you started becoming a PI officially led you to this clearly yeah when I was a kid I watched Magnum PI that's that's how everybody in the business got started. Um, yeah, I worked in, uh, I guess you would call it corporate due diligence um, for about 23 years and then got really tired of what I like to call real estate emergencies um, and started looking for another um, 
another way to use my skills and the private investigations business seemed to be it. Yeah. And I've been doing it now for almost 10 years and I wouldn't do anything else. You love it. Love it. Would you in a million years have thought back in the day that you would be doing it now? Because your your first love, I I did not even know that you did real estate. I did a little due diligence of my own and Mm -hmm. read up on you a a bit. And I didn't know that you did the real estate thing. I always knew you as writer pal. Yeah. um, So in college, I had a professor tell me on a paper, he said, I pray to God you never try to write for a living. Oh, my God. And I thought, you know what? That sounds like a really good idea. So I started writing as much as I could, and I would send him every published clip that I got along the way. Um, and uh, the real estate thing was more of um, I was I'm a, I still am to this day a certified general real estate appraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, I dealt on the commercial side of things, and my job was basically. Company A wants to buy 50 apartment complexes in the southeast. They would hire our company, and they would assign me the task of going around and and verifying um, income, expenses, checking out the rent roll, checking out the income Mm. statement, uh, doing valuation studies, those kind of things. Um, So that's my experience in real estate, and I guess you could say I'm an expert in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really, 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 really got tired of real estate-based emergencies. Um, what do you mean by that? You've said that twice now. What does that well, mean? Well, you know, in, in, in the real estate business, if, for your listeners who have ever bought their own home, they know the feeling. There's a closing date. Everything starts to get quicker and quicker and faster and faster the closer you get to that date. And everybody's emotions are up and it's got to happen on this date. If we don't do it by this date, we're going to lose a point on the mortgage rate we're going to lose this we're going to lose that and at the end of the day nobody's going to die nobody's going to be hurt nobody's in jeopardy if you miss a closing date you schedule another closing date um and in the commercial world the numbers are exponentially greater so you've got a 50 million dollar deal and somebody's really worried about one you know one basis point on a mortgage rate it makes a huge difference yeah but at the end of the day I didn't want to deal with those kind of emergencies because they don't feel like emergencies to me. Um, the work I do now feels like real work that means something that has an impact on someone's life. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had to go to school to become a PI? Is that how that works? <laughs> no. Oh. Um, is that you, how I got my ministership? I just yeah. went online. Went online, <laughs> yeah. Um, in Tennessee, you have to take a test to become a, an investigator. Um in order to own your own company, you have to take another test to be what they call a managing agent or something like that. I don't know what it like. You've got to have a company license and then a personal license to do the PI work. So there are tests involved. There are fees involved. There are applications to fill out. I just had a young lady get her uh, PI license under my company, and I think it took her maybe two, three months worth of time to go through the process from huh. stem to stern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you did that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about that. I'm sorry. I mean, you sort of answered that question about her, but I'm more like, <laughs> yeah, I did. That. I mean, I went through the so process. You went through I, the process I was working for a company in Brentwood doing the, uh, the, the commercial, uh, real estate due diligence things. And, and, um, and 
I just was really tired of the work. I, I did not want to go to the office. I actually built an office in my backyard to try and be away from that office environment. Still hated the work. Um, went through the process of getting my PI license. I think it took me roughly three months to mm-hmm. get it, you know, from starting the application process to getting through it. And I had, I had no one to help me do it. But is it like they, they ask you background checks? They want to make sure you're not a, you know, serial killer or anything like that? Or is it just... Sort of. I mean, you, you have to do a fingerprint card. Okay. Um, and, you know, people watch television and you see these fingerprint scanners and you think that everything is really high tech. In Tennessee today, they, they allow you to submit fingerprint cards, which is literally a a cardboard piece of paper that you roll your sure. I've been arrested. On. I know. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, who hasn't? Um, I don't know. But yeah, you, you you submit your fingerprints. They do an FBI background check on you. Okay. Um, they do a I think a TBI background check on you. Um, you fill out any manner of forms swearing and averring that you're not a criminal, that you are a United States citizen, that you're of legal age, all of those things. Um, What's the legal age of a PI? I think it's... 18? I think, but I'm oh, not okay. certain. License to carry. I, I suppose it's carrying age. I Assuming guess, I that know. you have all that stuff. You don't. I have a carry permit. I don't have any guns. Oh, okay. That's I used to, you don't. I don't. Why is that? I'm not going to shoot anybody. Okay, well, that's a good reason. Yeah. It's a perfectly good reason. I don't reason. want to shoot anybody. Another perfectly good reason. And somebody asked me the other day, they said, well, what if somebody pulls a gun on you? I'm like, I'm going to run in a serpentine fashion. Smart move. Yeah. Good use of the word serpentine. Yeah. Too. So is it like in the movies and the books where you're crouched down in a in a McDonald's packaging strewn car and you're, you know, under your brim of your cap, you're... Fedora? Your, yeah. You've no. got the... No, and I don't. I have done surveillance work. I don't do surveillance work anymore. Um, I don't do what I think people in the PI industry call domestic work, which is couples divorcing. Uh, wife hires you to follow husband, or husband fire, hires you to follow the wife to find out if they're cheating on them or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't like that work. It doesn't feel good to me. Um, I have done it, and there have been occasions when it. it, it made a difference in someone's life Um, but for the past five years I have been doing primarily criminal defense work Hmm. so if someone is accused of a crime by the state um, for instance in Tennessee you'll have a district attorney they'll have investigators on staff you have police who investigate for the district attorney you have you know a whole the crime lab is under the police department usually they've got a whole bevy of resources that is available to them, um, that are available to them. Defense attorneys, by and large, have... Zilch. Themselves. Yeah, right. Um, So clients can pay, private pay clients, people who are hiring a lawyer on their own, can pay to have an investigator join the team and do some digging on their part in a criminal case. And I I work with a lot of attorneys that, that actually do that. Their clients will say, hey... You know, have your investigator go talk to all of the witnesses and let's see mm-hmm. what we can find out. Um, a lot of times in Tennessee, I do a lot of work in Texas, um, the mm-hmm. courts will appoint an attorney. So it will either be a public defender or a court-appointed attorney. Someone's not actually an employee of the public defender's office or a private attorney, but they take appointed cases. Um, and once that happens, that attorney can request the services of an investigator and the court will assign 
um, an investigator to the case. Mm-hmm. So I, I do a good bit of that kind of work as well. So how often has the stuff you've dug up for a defense helped to overturn a case against the defendant? Overturned? Um, or, you know, dismissed, I suppose. I don't know the lingo really. I don't know that, I mean, I had, a, I had a case in Texas a couple of months ago where I talked to the um, victim in a domestic assault case, and the victim said to me, I don't know why they're pushing this, I don't want this to go to trial, um, L3 at Texas Tech, law school, I, I don't want to be in a trial, I don't have time for it, and I'm not mad at the person anymore, I don't want them to be in any more trouble. And I got them to sign what they call an affidavit of non-prosecution, and the case was dropped mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. Um, <clears throat> usually that's not what happens. Um, usually for the court to assign an investigator, it'll be a, a fairly substantial crime, be it uh, robbery, murder, you know, vehicular homicide, something along those lines. Um, and in those cases, there's usually enough evidence that they could take it to trial um, and let a jury decide it. Mm-hmm. Um, my work would go towards um, you know, helping the defense team tell a different story or finding facts that the police got wrong or that they missed or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't necessarily be getting the case dismissed, but it might mean getting the client acquitted at trial, which is pretty fun. Yeah. Has that happened? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, so as a defense attorney, a defense attorney has to just do his job under, or her job, not to be sexist, under the uh, idea that my defendant, regardless whether I know they're guilty or not, I'm going to try and get them to get a not guilty verdict, right? That's, that's the goal. So if you've been hired by the defense, who knows, let's just say John Smith is guilty, he killed somebody, mm-hmm. the defense attorney is arguing, no, I didn't kill him, there's not enough proof whatever, hire Hal to come in mm-hmm. and help dispute, you know, help us to, to use, you know, make the dispute that John Smith didn't kill anyone. Are you required once you've been hired to testify or can they decide to not call you up there? If you go, oh my God, he's clearly guilty through all my findings. Can they go, whoop, we're just kidding. We don't want to talk to you. <laughs> um, no, I'm almost never required to testify. Okay. Um, and there are pretty strong reasons why. Um, I work directly with the attorneys. I know I'm usually in the room for discussions about theory of the case, about strategy, and if I were to be put on the stand, that would open up potential questions that nobody wants answered. Um, So I would almost never testify. The only time I can think of as as a defense investigator where I would testify is if if I interviewed a witness and I make my notes or transcribe, get an audio of the interview or transcribe it or whatever. If I talk to a witness and they tell me one story and then they get on the stand and they tell a different story, then I can be called as an impeachment witness to say, Hey, that's not what they told me on this date at this time. Unless you marry them. (laughs) Unless I marry them, which I'm not going to do. I've already got a wife. Um, A lovely wife. She's great. Um, so, no, I usually don't testify. Um, I'm trying to think. There was something else you asked in there in, in, involved in that line of thinking. Oh, oh, oh. So, um, yeah, so we'll just say Doug Williams has been accused of capital murder. 
meaning he it's he's committed a murder and he faces the possibility of life without parole or the death penalty. Um, when you say, I know for a fact he's guilty, the, the law in the United States is you're innocent until sure. found guilty. Um, and the, beyond a reasonable doubt. Beyond a reasonable doubt, that's which the, is, is a the, high standard. That's a pretty. That's the thing right there. That's a very high yeah. standard. Um, in civil cases, it's basically fifty-one percent of the evidence is against you, then you can be found guilty. But in criminal cases, it's beyond huh. a reasonable doubt, which uh-huh. is, is an incredibly high standard to me. Um, by the state, sure, the state has the burden beings, of proof. Especially juries are pretty manipulable, really. I mean, oh, yeah. in general. Yeah, I mean. It, it, Humans are... A trial, at the end of the day, a trial in front of a judge and a jury of 12 is, you can boil it down to a storytelling competition. Correct. Whoever tells a better story is probably going to prevail. That's why I think jury by robots is really the way it should go. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good to have you... The people that serve on juries are amazing people. I mean, it's terrifying when you look over there and you see, you know, who might end up on the jury, but... I've always been impressed when you see 12 random people from a community get together and get put into a room and they have to consider a thing mm-hmm. with with the level of consideration they give the issues. They actually, by the time they get through the process to where the, the judge hands the case over to them, they go into the jury room to deliberate. By the time they get there, they've, they've usually gotten to the point where they're going to be thoughtful and deliberative mm-hmm. and consider things. Um, it is a fascinating process. It's, Absolutely. And it's gut-wrenching, and it doesn't make any sense. I, when you walk into a courtroom, do you, do you remember the old attraction out at Opryland Hotel called the Angle Inn? Mm-mm. I don't so think was, I've been here long enough. It was a house you walked into, and when you walked in, all of the walls and floors were at odd angles, so by the time you got through the thing, you were like completely discombobulated. Mm. That's what court feels like to me, because something that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. cannot be played out in front of the jury until everybody's agreed that it's going to be played out this way. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rules of evidence that, you know, some piece of evidence that is everybody knows it's there, everybody knows it's true, everybody knows it's you know damning or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, it sheds a good light or a bad light either way. It's a fact, but the jury is not allowed to hear it because of one thing. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you sit there and think, man, if they could only hear this, but they're not allowed to because the rules don't allow whatever mm-hmm. that is. I just um, learned something, too, that if, uh, if somebody doesn't object <coughs> within a certain amount of time, that they don't get to. Is that... I just heard that on a podcast, and I thought, wow, I had no idea that that I don't was know if a, that, a lawyer said that. So yeah, I'm I don't know that there's a time limit so much, but if you... If someone asks a question and someone starts answering it and the other guy doesn't object, the answer's already out it's there. It's done. Doesn't, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. And you might be able to say You can't unhear things. Right. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But I, I'm, on the TV world, of course, or the movie world, they say, jury, don't think about that. That that didn't actually just happen. And I always find that amusing because how do you unthink something? Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible. Yes. Um, but bring I, the census device in to scramble your brain for a minute and then we'll start over. <laughs> this is sound a little bit Kurt Vonnegut now. Um, but yeah, the idea of, of, of you're innocent unless found guilty or proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt is 
is something I think that a lot of people hear and they think they understand, but at the end of the day, I don't think they do because how many times have you seen someone arrested? They're in shackles. They're being led into the thing. Mm -hmm. There's been no trial. There's been not even an indictment handed down yet. Um, they've been arrested for the thing, and someone says, well, they've been arrested. They must have done something wrong. Oh, there are people that sit in jail that have not yet been brought to charges against them. They're sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. <clears throat> There's that. Um, yeah, they don't tend to be white very often either. They don't? Is, yeah. Uh, I spent last week in Austin, Texas, working on a, a short documentary. I spoke with um, Johnny Lindsay, who is uh, a, an African-American man. I'm going to guess, how old is he? He's maybe 60 now. Mm -hmm. um, spent 23 years in jail for a crime he did not commit. Uh, he got railroaded by a district attorney, um, got shafted by the system, mm -hmm. and spent 23 years in jail. Uh, his son was an infant when he went in. Jeez. He gets out, his son's a grown man. Sure. Um, and his, his, he preaches, this can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone. Yeah. And the bottom line is, he, he got railroaded. The state is compensating him for his time pretty well, but I think, I don't know what the number is, $75,000, $85,000 a year for every year that he was incarcerated. But, you know, I asked him last week, I was like, does the money make up for it? He says, no, I'd rather have my freedom any day. Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't buy something like you that. You can't fix it. No. Um, we spent some time talking with a fellow by the name of Chris Scott. Um, Chris spent 13 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Um, he was released on actual innocence. The judge says, you know, you're, I'm releasing you on actual innocence. You're so what, what was the, uh, the turning point on that? How did how Johnny did Lindsay's case was a DNA case, ah. um, and there was DNA available to be tested. Uh, once the DA got the conviction, they didn't want the DNA tested anymore. Um, oh, it took a long time to get that. It makes me crazy. It's insane. It makes me crazy. Um, Chris Scott was in prison. He was found guilty and put in prison for um, murder. I think he got a life sentence. Uh, the guy who actually did the killing um, came forward 13, 12 years later and said, I'm the one that did the thing. And they had to verify a bunch of stuff, but turns out he actually did the thing and they let Chris go. Shit. Um, I always think back to that <clears throat> moment in uh, Star Trek when Spock, you know, goes into the, the, the chamber and he's like, oh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or whatever he says. Mm. I'm not quoting it exactly. And I understand that that's the way our, our justice system just assumes that, yeah, a couple guys, a couple girls, whatever, are going to get incarcerated that don't deserve to be there. They're going to get shafted. But in general... You know the, the the system works in general, and I'm like, mm, that doesn't that's not okay with me as a human rights issue. Like on so many levels, you can't. It it makes me crazy. It does. Is like, how can you say that that's okay? You're saying that it's okay because it's mostly black people, first of all, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, I mean, that's the other thing you were talking about. Um, the the guy comes in and he's in the shackles and he's this. Juries can't unsee that either. 
And guess what? If you bring a man in in shackles in a bright orange jumpsuit, if he never committed the crime, you've already imprinted that mm-hmm. conversation onto the brain of the person who's mm-hmm. going to make that final decision. Mm-hmm. And when I say a trial is... Put him in a three-piece suit, man. Give him a haircut and a or shave something, or, or something whatever. That looks, something that looks, looks right for who they are. Yeah. Um, when I say it's a storytelling competition, yeah. all of that is part of the storytelling. Well, and I, I call bullshit on the we're all innocent until proven guilty. It's like, really? I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, legally speaking, we are. Well, I get the language, yeah. but, but does it make it Factually true? speaking, there's a fellow by the name of Michael Morton, pretty famous case in Texas. Michael Morton went, was a manager at a grocery store in Georgetown, Texas. He goes to work one morning really early. Leaves his wife a note, wife a note saying something along the lines of "You, you hurt my feelings last night." Whatever. He goes to work. He comes home about ten o'clock. Cops all over his house. His wife's been murdered. Ooh, bad time. Um, he gets number one. He's lost his wife. He's got a young son who very likely saw the crime happen. Um said some monster killed mommy. Uh, The DA and the detectives looked at him pretty much immediately to the exclusion of all others. Uh, They tried him for her murder, found him guilty of her murder, told a really, really, really compelling story that included... The note. The note, and and, apparently he he had a, a porn magazine somewhere, and they were like he was depraved human being. They just painted this really bad picture of him. He was convicted of murdering his wife. So he's lost his wife. He loses his son to the system. He goes to Which jail. Which God only knows what happens right. next there. He goes to jail. And there's this one piece of evidence that the district attorney knew about, but nobody else did. It's a bandana found in the backyard with blood on it. And they finally, after some legal wrangling, get new discovery that shows there was a bandana. They get the bandana. 20-something years later, they get it tested for DNA. It's another guy who had done a almost exact same M.O. murder um, in the same town two years after Michael Morton's wife was murdered. So how is the DA that's suppressing out of the benefit of his own case, how is he not culpable? To me, <clears throat> that, how is that not criminal? There is. Explain that. There, I, I, don't I can't. Understand. I can't explain it one hundred percent. I can say that you know there's there's the idea of absolute immunity for district attorneys, so that they cannot be sued if they make a mistake. And that I get that. It makes sense. They're in a they're in a very tough situation. They're tasked with protecting the peace and dignity of the state. So I get that. I don't find that offensive. Um, but when they get it overly zealous, I think the guy in the Michael Morton case, and I'm not sure we can check later, but um, I think he ended up spending maybe a week in jail. Really? And losing his uh, law license. Uh, rightfully so, yeah, as far absolutely. as I'm concerned. Um, and, and Why that 27 case, years to get that? If they had it... 23, something like that. I mean, whatever that. it was. Yeah. I mean, if it was t- you know 20 minutes. Like, yeah. why, did, why did it not... Once it was discoverable, which... For those who don't understand they what that means, it means yeah. so whenever you have evidence, I and I'm I don't know exactly, but you're supposed to share it with the other side so there's no surprises. But there's some stuff you don't have to share. Is that how that works, or is it? Well, in in um, in most states, 
the prosecution has to turn over what they call exculpatory evidence. Anything that could be construed as indicating your client is... Has culpability. Well, exculpable. You're looking for exculpatory, so it shows that you're not culpable. Oh. In some form or fashion. Oh, Inculpatory oh, evidence wait, so, shows that you are culpable. Okay, so the, the prosecutor, if they have discoverables that say, oh, they didn't do it, they have to they show They have to show that. Okay, I in didn't know that. In Texas, thanks to the Michael Morton case, there's a new law called the Morton Law that requires the district attorney to turn over all discovery. Um, and there are DAs in Texas that are fighting that because they say this hampers our ability to maintain case strategy and tactics and not tell the defense about it, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, in Texas, they're supposed to turn over all discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and How about a thing they have to martyr for is that now there's that law and that poor man yeah. spent his whole life. So Michael Morton, um, and here's the interesting thing about Michael Morton. He's a, a white middle-class man, um, Georgetown, Texas, which is, Williamson County, Texas, just north of Austin, one of the most conservative counties in the country, you know, white bread county, right? Um, And he was railroaded through the system, wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully imprisoned, um, and he's a middle-class white dude. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've, I've got a friend out in Texas. She works for the Texas Monthly. Her name is Pam Koloff. Pam writes about criminal justice issues. And the Texas Monthly, if you're not familiar with it, is probably one of the best magazines in the country. Um, really? I'm not familiar with it. It's a fantastic magazine. It's, it's Texas-centric, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of cowboys and Indians type stuff. In there, but they cover some really amazing stories. Hmm. And Pam focuses on criminal justice issues. And I was talking to her last week, and she said... You know, I, I ran through the idea of, you know, I had a friend a couple of years ago. He says, this will never happen to you and me. I mean, why are you worried about these things? And she said, A, that's just not true. It does happen to middle-class white people. I've got several cases I've written about where that happened. And B, why would it be okay for it to happen to anyone? Hey, well, there you go. That's that subtle racism that yeah. pops up. Yeah. yeah. Not so subtle. Not so subtle at all. I mean, the number the number of African American men that are incarcerated in this country is astonishing. It's staggering. Yeah, and it's disturbing, and as far as I'm concerned, it's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. That's that. You know, oh, well, we don't lynch anymore. Well, yeah, we do. We just call it prison. We yeah. just put them all in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So the documentary is this? Is this your documentary, or something that you're just you're you're being interviewed for? No, we're actually working on a documentary. So you're making it? Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, and What's the, it called? It, Do we, we know, don't know yet? what the title is? Oh, okay. Yet. The, the bottom line is, we uh, I feel like there's a need to present to a lot of the PI community and a lot of the lawyer friends that I have a case for criminal defense, an aggressive criminal defense. Um, a lot of I won't say a lot. A lot of attorneys will walk a case through the system um, and you know provide what probably most people would say is effective assistance of counsel, but they don't want to get real aggressive with their defense tactics. Um, the lawyers that I work with are, I'm proud to say, aggressive, hard-fighting, passionate attorneys who will dig in for their clients mm-hmm. and. and 
take a thing to trial and fight for them. Is it their clients with money or just period? Their no, clients? just period. Oh, that's good to yeah. hear. Yeah. Um, some of them have money, some of them because don't. Because the, you said before, you know, some of the clients will hire <clears throat> better attorneys. Not better, that's that's a judgment call, but just attorneys that cost money versus mm-hmm. court-appointed. Mm-hmm. And then they can also afford to bring you in. Mm-hmm. So again, suddenly it's not all fair in love and war. It's a division of who has money and who doesn't. The True. people that are poor... Bye-bye, see you later in 30 years or the ever. Old, the old joke of you can get all the justice you can afford. It's, a, it's Yeah. Um, I will say this for the, for, the, for the lawyers that I work with who are court-appointed lawyers. Um, they are passionate. They give everything they have to their cases. They will fight for their clients. And the, one of the first things they will do when they get a case that is of a certain caliber, say, you know, aggravated robbery where the person may be facing 30-something years in jail or murder or attempted murder, one of the first things they'll do is they'll petition the court to assign me to their case so that they can have a better, stronger a fighting defense. Fighting chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I love these guys. Some of them, a lot of them are younger attorneys, but they're, they're passionate, they're smart, they're creative, and they use the resources that are available to them to do the best job they can. Are there lazy lawyers out there? Sure. Are there lazy investigators out there? Sure. Yeah. Um, I've talked to criminal defense investigators who have said things like, why do you spend so much time on that? You know they're guilty. And I have a real problem with that. It pisses me off. I'm like, no, that bit didn't. Did Doug Williams shoot Cesar whoever in the chest with a rifle? Yes. There's no dispute about that. Is it murder? No. Had he not had a good lawyer fighting on his behalf, had he not had a good team digging on his behalf and telling a really good strong story on his behalf, he probably would have been found guilty of murder. But it wasn't murder. It was self-defense. And it was pretty clear to see. The district attorney really argued hard that it was murder. Um, But, I mean... I don't, just because a string of events occurs and your guy pulled the trigger does not mean your guy is guilty of murder. Sure. Especially in Texas. Especially in Texas. Or in Tennessee. (laughs) I don't know the laws in Tennessee as much for that kind of thing. In Texas, it seems like they... They're a little bit more they like wiggle protecting room. their own. Yeah. They're, um, they're going to more wiggle. But, I, you know, the, the the appointed attorneys that I work with, I I respect them. I love them. They're great. They're aggressive. And they fight really hard for their clients. At the same time, the private pay lawyers that I work with, like you said, charge a lot of money. They're passionate and they work hard sure. and they do the thing. And I think it's really important to remember, yes, it's wrong to... Um, it's wrong to deprive an indigent person that cannot pay of good representation. At the same time, it doesn't mean that someone that can pay doesn't deserve sure. good representation. I agree. As well. It's, it's I, the I had previous, a, not the latter, that I'm concerned about. Sure, um, but I had a, I had a, I've got a very dear friend who is an investigator um, and. She, we were working on a case together at one point. Um, she's a Texas girl. She's super smart, really good investigator. She's used to working indigent cases where the clients cannot pay. And she, she is passionate about that work. This was a private pay case. 
the family had money, they were paying the investigators and paying them well, and she had real heartburn about doing the work because she was paying, being paid so well. Hmm. And I don't have that kind of heartburn. I mean, I have a house note to pay. Yeah. I have, you know, I've, I've got a life that I'm trying to live and build and trying to save up some money. And if I have a chance to make a little bit of money, I'm going to try and do sure. it. Sure. Well, you're doing your job. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with yeah. being paid for your job and your yeah. skill set, which, like Liam Neeson, I'm sure you have a particular set of skills. I do have a particular <laughs> set of skills. Do you get to play uh, just uh, sort of off the, off in fun land a minute? Do you have some pretty fun little gadgets or is that more... For, I don't. You know, because that's more the surveillance stuff. Though. Yeah, and I, even those guys, the, the, the best gadget in the surveillance world right now, and I've talked to probably 50 guys in the past six months that do a lot of surveillance work, their number one go-to gadget where they get most of their video evidence. The phone. iPhone. Yeah, man. Is that not peeked in on everything at this point? I mean, I mean can, it's always on anyway. You can, if, you, if you're doing surveillance at a bar and someone's down the bar, you can pretend to be having a phone call while you're videotaping them doing whatever they're not supposed to be doing. But that's not illegal? No, totally not. Because they're in a public place. Yeah. But recording their talking? Audio you can't record. So video is okay, but not audio. I mean... That's kind of like prostitution's a, illegal, but porn is not. Yeah. It makes no sense to me, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that maybe neither one should be illegal. I make that same argument, okay. yeah. Um, um, yeah, I'm with you on that. There's some weird laws about... Girl, got to make a living. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this purple leather ain't going to pay for itself. <laughs> um, there are... Uh, there There's some strange laws about recording and videotaping. Um, Tennessee is what is known as a one-party consent state... If I'm a party to the conversation, I can record that conversation. Fascinating. I don't have to tell you about it. I don't have to let you know. Um, and there's there's an advantage to that sometimes. If I'm interviewing a witness, I can have a little recorder in my pocket. They never see it. It doesn't change the dynamic. I don't even notice that it's there anymore. So I just I started when I go in, make my notes, go into the house, mm-hmm. the interview. At the end of the day, what I end up with is a transcription of the interview this word for word. It says, you know, how question, you know, whoever their name is answer. Mm-hmm. And I can then go to my attorney, give him that, give him the audio. If you or heard that and heard the audio and, um, they know everything that I've talked to the person about. Mm-hmm. And if I did not ask a question, they want me to explore They can give me notes. Hey, go back and talk to them about this. Ask them about this again. Sure. Um, a lot of investigators I've, I've heard from, some lawyers will go interview a witness with a notepad and come back with like a half paragraph, you know, summary of their talk. Yeah. Which I, I feel like that shouldn't be as useful because then you're going through the paradigm of whoever's writing it down. You're yeah. not getting the, the it's interpreted. The, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. literally impossible to have the other person's perspective. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But so, I guess in Texas, if is, I ruled the world. Texas is the same way. <laughs> um, it's one party consent. Uh, Florida is two-party consent. I have to have their permission to record the conversation. And at, at that point, I, I will sit down and say, hey, do you mind if I record sure. this just to help me take notes? And yeah. most times they say, no, that's fine. Have you come across um, hostile people in your journeys thus far? Yeah, I had a case a couple of years ago that involved um, some um, some pretty bad dudes. And I went to... Uh, talk to these pretty bad dudes in their kind of world, which was a trailer park world with pit bulls and chains and mm. 
it was rough and I was terrified. Um, turned out they were super nice. We got along great. The dogs were sweet. Uh, ended up spending several hours sitting at a picnic table between two single wide 40 year old trailers with rebel flags and swastikas hanging around talking about something. That was here? No, it was Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and then same case, different witness, um, is a, a former church counselor and she knew the defendant back in his younger days and I wanted to talk to her to find out kind of you know, what his life was like, that kind of business. And uh, she lived very near my hometown so I felt really comfortable going to her house because she's going to be a little old lady living north of my hometown. These are my people, right? So I knock on the door and her husband comes to the door and cut off shorts and a forty-five caliber. That's it. And uh, I said... He said, can I help you? I said, I'm looking for Miss so-and-so. He said, she's not here. I said, well, I'm Hal Humphreys. I'm an investigator. And he points a gun to my face and says, I don't give a fuck who you are. Get off my property. Whoa. And I, <clears throat> hands up, backed out of the garage. Yes, sir. No problem. Not a problem. Uh, got in my car, turned the car on, and, and apparently said, well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> Jeez. Um, How terrifying. My heart rate went up. Pretty, I would imagine, fast. yeah. Um, and it was that point that I decided I don't. I, that was the first step in the process of me deciding I never wanted to carry a handgun. I, mm-hmm. If I had one in that situation, it might have uh, escalated quickly. Yeah, and there's no yeah. need for it. Yeah. I mean, all I had to do was get off his property. Yeah. Um, Did you end up getting the interview? No. 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 I mean, if someone doesn't want to talk to me, they don't have to. Um, there's, you know, I, I. I speak about interview skills and interview techniques a lot and one of the things I say is you know, I've got charm and good looks and I'm batting 500 <laughs> um, what happens if the if the witness or the person that you go to interview though is instrumental and you know it's instrumental is there any kind of law that says sorry if, Charlie you have to talk if someone refuses, if someone that. refuses to talk to me um, example uh, in Texas Small town, uh, victim's relative. I wanted to talk to the victim's relative to get their side of the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Knocked on the door. She opens the door. She looks at me. I'm not an unrecognizable guy. I've I've had this beard for quite some time, and it's usually a little bit longer than it is right now. But anyway, she looks at me. She looks me up and down, and she says, I've been told not to talk to you. And I said, well, that's your prerogative. I'm an investigator. It would be very helpful for me to hear your side of the story. I'm a fact investigator. I don't really care what happened. I just need to know. And she said, well, the district attorney told me not to talk to you, so I can't talk to you. At that point, since I am recording the interview, or the lack of interview, I can, that can, you, uh, the lawyer could take that to the judge and say, I want this person subpoenaed. Yeah, because that's, isn't it, what do they call it, bullying? Is that some sort of a bullying by the part of the prosecutor? I know there's probably a legal word for it. There is, I'm sure. Intimidation or something? Yeah. In a weird way? Yeah. I I don't know. Number one, I'm not certain the DA told him not to talk to me. It may have been victim impact. um, Sure staff or something like that. I don't know. Sure. Um, he said the DA told me not to talk to you. The DA, I think in that case, swears up and down he would never, ever, ever do such a sure. thing. Um, 
and there is a good chance the victim impact people are the actual ones who said it to him, but they are, oddly enough, office right next door to the district attorney's office. Explain so, what a victim impact team So there's, there's in most jurisdictions, there will be a victim, I think it's called victim impact, um, just a staff of people that can help victims during the trial and during the investigation to... Um, like therapists or something kind of help them or explain the process? Both, you mean? I guess. Okay. Yeah. Both, mm-hmm. I guess. That makes sense. I mean, I haven't had personal dealings with them, so I don't know exactly what they do. Um, sure. But they're, they're there to hold their hand through the trial process, hold their hand through the investigative process. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if 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 my wife were, were, were murdered, um, I would be considered one of the victims. Or suspects, depending. Or suspects, depending. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as as a victim, as a family member of the actual victim, the court would you know have somebody there to say, hey, here's here's what's going to happen next. They're going to ask you some hard questions. They're going to do that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and that's that's a great thing to have there. Um, but anyway, there are there are methods by which you can compel someone to talk to an attorney. So you go into a few different states. You have to be licensed each state? or I'm licensed in Tennessee and Texas. Did you have to take more tests for that, or was it just a crossover situation? Texas, I'm an employee um, of uh, an investigator out there. Okay. And um, he basically just he has me on as his employee, and when I work in Texas, I work underneath his license. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Oh, how many people do you have working underneath you? I've got one right now. Okay. Yeah. How do you vet personally I mean is it just a feeling I know they have to go through the test clearly but is it just sort of a or wait they they don't have to go through the test if they work for your license they have to go through the 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 licensing test oh okay Um, so even if they're under your yeah okay the last two investigators I've had were they started off as assistants Mm -hmm. so they basically would help me keep schedule and keep track of my time and keep track of I've got a real bad habit of saying yes to things and then not writing it down or putting it in my calendar. And they have been instrumental in helping me keep on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes calling people and saying, you know, Hal said he could do this, but he can't. Um, anyway, they, the first one was uh, a young lady. I think she was a um, Fulbright scholar. Wow. Uh, super smart, super talented. And um, I realized after a very short period of time that she would be a valuable person to have as an investigator mm-hmm. walked her through the licensing process got her licensed and then um, she wanted to do more than I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a guy in an office I don't have a big company you know what I'm saying so she wanted to, to learn more and do some more uh, interesting uh, not interesting is the word I'm looking for some more corporate side intelligence gathering work. So she went to work for Kroll Investigative Services. They're based out of here in Nashville. Their background investigations mm-hmm. arm is based out of here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next PI I hired was a young lady that was an assistant. And she literally, two, three, four months ago, said, I want to get my license. I'm like, that's great. Let's get into the process. Do other agencies say um, fire agencies, police agencies, Federal Bureau of Investigation or Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Do they ever call on you, or do they have their internal? They, they they all have their investigators in their own. Okay, so they have their own internal thing. Yeah, and you know it's, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. There are some, there are a lot of people in the private investigations business that think of themselves as um, um, almost 
with a prosecutorial mind. They want to bust the bad guy. And I find that kind of weird sometimes because the police have investigators, the DAs have investigators, TBI, FBI. Mm -hmm. They're investigators all over the place on the state side that work these things. And they, by and large, don't want help. They don't want some jack-knuckle PI from, you know, Podunk, Tennessee coming in and giving his opinion trying to be, you know, Sherlock Holmes in the thing. It Um, seems to me, but Sherlock Holmes, great example. It seems to me that if you're going to be a great investigator, you have to be all up in your head and not at all in your heart and going, oh, I'm going to get the bad guy, right? You know, sort yeah. of almost, you you have to be so impartial or mm-hmm. else you yourself will sway the evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Even in the collection process. Sure. So. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Um, and, and, and I guess... I love Sherlock Holmes. I like the new Sherlock, the, the real frenetic one that Cumberbatch... What's his name? Cumberbatch. Yeah, he's great. Such a great he's Sherlock great. Holmes. Um, I would totally do that guy. Just saying. Anyway. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that purple leather ain't going to pay for itself. Yeah, that's right. Um, I wouldn't even charge him. Fair okay, enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't... There may be some PIs out there that do what you would call consulting detective work. Um, by and large, police departments have their own process. Uh, you know, the... The TV shows about police officers doing it, they're called procedurals because it basically just walks through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last thing a police department would want is some, you know, literally hayseed investigator from, you know, Humboldt, Tennessee coming yeah. in saying, I got this, because they wouldn't follow procedures because they don't know the procedures because each department's a little bit different. And if you get so, you get one thing wrong... The case goes away. And it can, it can be tossed out. Yeah. 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 Wow. And I have I have a great deal of respect for, you know, detectives and police officers and even the, the, the DA's investigators. Those guys do good work. They really, I think most of them try to do really good work. Um, it's just occasionally you run across an aggressive DA who really wants to get the thing done and they will push their investigators or push the police to, you know, yeah, like you said, make the evidence work for them work for them instead of yeah yeah so do you have a good story that you can share that um i know a lot of it's probably well i don't know it's a public record right so you don't have any are you beholden to any kind of uh, once cases have come to trial and all that are you beholden to keep stuff quiet or is it i don't know that i'm contractually but i generally don't I, I, i almost i will never talk about a case in in real detail yeah um, uh, a lot of times what I do is I'll talk about a case in generality sure. I'll change the names and I'll change the sexes absolutely um, so yeah the uh, the uh, what kind of story are you looking for uh, something that sparks you is uh, that stands out as far as the history of your doing this what I think one of my favorite cases was um, I can't remember the name I gave the kid Williams was his last name um, who was accused of murdering this other guy um, when you say kid do you mean literally 20 something year old Okay. Uh, anything younger than 30 is a kid I understand um, so anyway uh, Mr. Williams is accused of murdering Mr. Rodriguez and he did, in fact, get out of his truck, and he did, in fact, shoot Mr. Rodriguez in the chest with a rifle. Um, no disputing that. Mr. Rodriguez died. Uh, the circumstances that led up to the whole thing were in question. There were a lot of, you know, 
back and forth about what actually happened. Um, the district attorney made the case that Mr. Williams, now call him our guy, went over to that house itching for a fight, got out and you know, preemptively shot the guy in the chest. Um, during the trial, the district attorney took every opportunity he could to make our guy stand up. And the DA was pretty short, so he would walk over and stand next to him just to illustrate how big and mean this could be, right? Yeah. He did this a number of times, and by the time it was getting down to closing arguments, um, the two lawyers were working the case, and I sat down for breakfast, and we were trying to figure out what the best story to tell would be. And, and one of the things that um, some of my lawyer clients have me do is go, I sit in the courtroom and I take notes on what's happening. And because they're dealing with like tactical things during the trial, during the day, and they can't necessarily see the strategic picture all the time. So my job is to sit there and kind of take notes on what, what it looks like the DA is doing, where he's going with these things, and they're dealing with the like objection, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my job is to, in the evening, sit down and kind of craft a one-page, you know, overview of the day so they can go back the next morning and kind of see where we think this is going. So in this case, the DA spent the entire week standing Mr. Williams up showing how big and menacing he was. And the story we came up with was, um, yeah, Mr. Williams is big. Think of a big, dumb, golden retriever. He's big. He's harmless. Mr. Rodriguez, on the other hand, he's short. No doubt about it, but he's tight and he's built and he's like a pit bull off the chain. The guy had like, I don't know, I don't know what the measurement was, but it was a high amount of crystallized methamphetamine in his system. High enough to be um, on the scale of... um, Superhero? Insane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Erratic, insane behavior. So The kind of people that eat faces. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, So this is the guy who was (laughs) murdered. And the argument they made was this guy was coming at him at... Mr. Williams, our defendant, and Mr. Williams protected himself. And at the end of the day, the jury bought it. They, they said, yeah, that, that makes sense to us. Um, and that was a fun case. Hmm. And it was fun coming up with the analogy of the... And I, I even fed them the line of, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. It's a great line. Which is an old Texas line. Sure. Um, and, you know, the two lawyers that I worked with in that case are they're amazing, they're smart, um, and... They make me feel smart by including me in the process, and they're they're good guys, and I like working cases with them. From what you've witnessed in in trials and such, would you say that (coughs) it comes more down to grand theater than it does to actual facts, or do you think facts do rule? Um, Facts definitely have to be there. I mean, if you got... They're what you call good facts and bad facts. Good facts are things that help your guy. Bad facts are things that make your guy look bad. Um, and the object of, of, sometimes the object of the game would be to recast the bad facts as not so bad or good facts if you can. Um, Golden Retriever. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, he's big. That's a fact. No doubt about it. He's six foot two, 270 pounds. He's a big kid, but he's not a grizzly bear. He's a big, dumb Golden Retriever. Um, but at the end of the day, you can't change the facts. You can't change them. They are yeah, this isn't politics. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just say a thing a number of times and have people... Believe it. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, but then again, the way it's cast, the way it's told, the way the, you know, some lawyers are really, really good at standing up in front of a jury and telling a story. Mm-hmm. Some are not. Um, I, I worked a case in Lubbock, Texas, several years ago, and the defense side, um, we were not successful in, in the outcome of the trial. Uh, the defendant was <coughs> found guilty of a pretty serious crime, and I, the district attorney, his name is Matt Powell, um, just did a brilliant job in his closing arguments. He told a really compelling story. Um, and, you know, hats off to him for that. That's that's part of his job. Mm-hmm. Um. <coughs> what happens with you, though, when, when somebody, you've presented all the evidence, you know that they're innocent. Let's just for sake of this, this question. Mm-hmm. They're innocent, but for whatever reason, didn't, didn't turn out and they are convicted of mm-hmm. the crime. Now, here you are, you have evidence, you, you know what you know, mm-hmm. the, de- the defense knows what they know, then does it start a process of trying to get them out of it or what do you do with all that information that you have? The appeals process will almost always start immediately. Okay. Um, and, and you get recalled, I see. <clears throat> Normally, in my experience, what we've done is if I'm if I'm working with the trial team, and the client is convicted, then if the client or the client's family wants us to remain their defense team, then we start working on the appeal. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, they'll want to switch to a new lawyer for a number of reasons. Um, <clears throat> you know, number one, if you've had the same team for four years and you get convicted, you know, maybe you want a fresh set of eyes on the thing. Mm. Um, number two, maybe that defense team is just tired of working on not, not lazy, but just like you get fatigued after a certain point and you know, it's good to have another fresh set of eyes come look at it. Um, but what, what does happen is regardless is everybody piles in all of their stuff and organizes it in a fashion that the next team can go through and see everything that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I, I, I will hand over my notebooks or copies of my notebooks and you know all that stuff. So they've got all of my thoughts, all of my evidence, everything that I've got. Everything's archived. Yeah. So how how what's your um, outlook on humanity? Do you think we're gonna pull out of our messes or I mean what you've seen you've seen probably many sides of the human coin and I personally I'm a bit of a pessimist I, I hope for good <clears throat> in people mm-hmm. but I think that ultimately people lie a lot and mm-hmm. I think they lie to themselves most of all mm-hmm. really so I imagine you are now quite good at spotting a lie and a liar um, I'm going to say this about spotting a lie I'm just as good at spotting a lie as you and the next person the next person statistically okay. speaking most people can tell if someone's lying to them about 50% of the time really if you spend, and I've, I've talked to experts about this like board certified experts who are academics for 30 years studying human body language and facial expressions those kind of things um, they have told me you know, if you study this stuff for 30 years you can increase your percentage to 53% Fascinating. From fifty. Wow. So, it's it's difficult. I just assume. I assume people are telling me the truth. I really do. I, there's no reason for people to lie to me. I don't care what. 
I think that makes done. a difference. I think if you come at it without any kind of judgment, yeah. that people are tend to be their most yeah. And here's the thing: self. I think the thing I've learned the most over the past ten years or so is I, I've pretty well gotten rid of my judgmental side. Um, I still have moments like any other human being, but sure. I, there's always a reason why somebody did whatever it is they did. Right. There's always a reason. Um, and for them, it may be justified whether yeah, or not sure. it makes whether sense the, to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, had a, I had a conversation with a lawyer on the last surveillance case I worked, and said the, her client really wants peace of mind. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I mean, what you're asking me to find is no way going to bring them peace of mind, number one. Number two, I don't care who's fucking who. I just don't care. Yeah. It matters not to me. Um, and I'm not sure that the state of Tennessee really cares. That's a no-fault divorce state. I mean, you get divorced for any reason you want to. Right. It's not California, people. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just... I, I, I don't judge behaviors like that. I don't. Do you care. get called into things with children, though? I mean, I think that that starts the the, the line of. Yeah, but I I do. I'm not. I, I, how do you how <clears throat> do you disengage from the emotion of that? Um, when a child has been hurt, I mean. Again, there's always more than one side to the story. There's always a reason why whatever happened happened. Um, I, yeah, I I have worked. Um, child molestation cases That's on, be so hard. on the team you know representing the guy who's accused of the crime and you know sometimes it looks really 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 bad and there are witness testimony and there, there's witness testimony and there's physical evidence and you look at it and you're like oh my god this is horrible at the end of the day it was a false outcry it didn't happen the kid made it up sure. um, and I mean I know I, that does happen it happens I wouldn't say quite frequently, but I think it happens enough to be worthy of... Um, always going to the evidence. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> always, you know, so there's this idea of direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. All physical evidence is basically circumstantial. Really? Blood drops on the floor, that's circumstantial. I mean, I could have walked through the room and dropped a blood on the floor. I guess that makes sense, yeah. Um, totally direct evidence sense. is eyewitness testimony. But yeah, even that is fallible. Yes, that's that's the thing. That's the point I'm getting to is eyewitness testimony is one of the weakest, weakest, weakest forms of evidence. I'm sitting in the backyard with a lawyer and a defendant. Um, and the lawyer is 6'2", GQ lawyer, really good-looking guy. The defendant is 5'11", burly, beard longer than mine, motorcycle riding, you know, badass guy. And I'm not a small dude. So we're sitting around, the three of us, and a snake crawls amongst us, and we jump up and scream like little boys and run in the house. The defendant's mom says, what is going on? And I'm like, there's a snake up there. And she says, what kind? I was like, I don't know, but it was big and black. And the defendant says, no, no, it wasn't black. It was green. And the lawyer says, you guys are out of your mind. That snake was purple. Right. There's been studies of that since the 60s about yeah. how we see things. So the fact is yeah. there was a snake. What yeah. color was it? Anybody's guess. Yeah. It's like that famous scene in My Cousin Vinny. 
Have you not seen this movie? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the scene. Marissa Tomei, <laughs> with the, the, all the eyewitnesses, just like yeah. a half-blind lady, and yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, again, I try not to judge, and if there's a if there's a, a case where a child has been hurt or abused or whatever, I find the abuse is horrible and despicable, but... You still have to do your job. Yeah, and, and the person that... Again, the person accused is not technically guilty until they're they're innocent, until they're found guilty. Yeah. So I'm going to do everything I can to, you know... Get to the bottom of yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And if at the end of the day, you know, I had a friend of mine that um, is a defense investigator in, in um, Austin, Texas, and he said... <coughs> excuse me. He said at the end of the day, if... if if they're found guilty and we've presented a good case and, and all that stuff and justice is served, then I'm fine with it. Yeah, I imagine that would be Yeah. Yeah. The the thing. If I was a defense attorney, have I'm not one. I'm just gonna imagine if I was one and first of all, I think that would be a really tough job. I understand the necessity of it is mm-hmm. absolute, without mm-hmm. a question. But man, I bet they have some bad dreams sometimes. It's it's you know, I, I don't watch breaking bad. Because I, I see <laughs> crime scene photos and videos all the time. I don't, I don't need my entertainment to be filled with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard job. being. I, I'm not an attorney. Um, I work with some amazing attorneys. And I, I, I love the guys I work with dearly. Um, I see it take a toll on them. It, it, they, they become attached to their clients. They, they you know... A loss is a hard, hard thing to take. Um, when you watch your client, who you know is innocent, be found guilty and walk out of the room in shackles, they won't even let him hug his mom because he's now in state custody. You can't touch him. Um, <clears throat> it's heartbreaking. It just, yeah. it just absolutely breaks your heart. Um, and to know too that <clears throat> the going into the criminal justice system, their their chance of an actual even when they get out, their chances are slim. slim to none. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, the, I mean, and we live in a society that send young, again, with the black thing, young black people to jail immediately without mm-hmm. much help or aid, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of times, you know, they can't afford the kind of lawyering and stuff that'll help their cases and stuff so off they go and guilty not guilty whichever they are their likelihood of reoffense you know because Mm -hmm. now they're going to go live their life inside this totally fucked up situation Mm -hmm. and and, you know you you think about your client who you know is maybe upper middle class professional now they got to go to prison and get the shit kicked out of them. It's gonna happen. Yeah, get um, raped, get all that stuff. Well, you know. I mean, I'm just. God, you hope not. Um, I don't know. It, <clears throat> it's got wrenching. I, you know, there's a there's a, a a lawyer in Texas named Dan Hurley, and Dan is in Lubbock, Texas. He's a super super sweet guy. I don't know how old. Maybe sixty, sixty two, something like that. Um, and. I've never met anyone that gets more um, gets more passionate about his clients and their life and 
how whatever this thing is is going to impact their life. Um, I know he loses sleep over it. I know he, you know, he, he wakes up early and works late into the night. Um, has been doing so for thirty something years. Um, he's got a, a young lawyer that he just hired. This guy's name is Frank Sellers. I think Frank just turned thirty. Frank is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. I've spent a lot of time with him. He's super, super smart. But I mean, at the end of the day, he's passionate, and he's compassionate, and he's yeah, thank you know, God. It, it, but it it, 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 I watch it take a toll on them. I watch it take a toll on all of us. If our client is mm-hmm. found guilty, it just it, it heartbreak is not doesn't even come close to getting it. Yeah, man, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours but I appreciate your time and um, we can we can sign off but thank you so much Hal, Hal Humphreys awesome I can't wait to watch the documentary I'm a huge fan of documentaries well it's going to be a very short documentary how, how short like 10 know. minutes maybe, <laughs> maybe 10 or 15 minutes oh, wow. a short film. It'll, be, it'll be in and out real quick okay <laughs> oh the jokes yeah, right. <laughs> thank you so much yeah thank you Have a wonderful uh, afternoon. I will. I'm going to grab some more water. Yeah, please do. Okay, great.